As we approach Christmas, um, we continue in our sermon series, in the We Believe series. Um, this, this, what we come to today, is, is the section called uh, The Life of Christ, or Life of, life of Christ, or Life in Christ. Um, it's a fundamental reality about the true Christian life, a reality that tells us that as believers in Jesus Christ, we have been united with him in a way that is like a vine being united to a branch, like, he, like Jesus himself speaks of in John 15. A reality that tells us that we've been united to him by the Holy Spirit, a reality that tells us it is his life and his power flowing through us, God himself dwelling in us by the Spirit, and truly as believers of Jesus Christ, we have every reason to delight in our life in Christ. And so the message, or the title of this message is Delighting in Our Life in Christ. As a matter of fact, almost every message through this whole series has been delighting in this truth. So it's not just simply information that kind of comes in and settles around and gets spit out in some way. It's, it's delighting in. It's one of the reasons why you'll see on our statement of faith, or our, um, our, uh, our mission statement back there, that we... Glorify, we want to glorify God by um, make, making or maturing and multiplying disciples who enjoy, who enjoy the good news of Jesus Christ, and so delighting in these truths. And so um, even though we're only going to focus on verses 11 through 14 of Titus 2, I did ask Annalise to read the whole chapter for a reason. Uh, it's in verses 1 through 10 that Paul has been exhorting Titus a young pastor, to teach his people what a life looks like that accords with sound doctrine. So he's being told, teach this in a, and, and show then through your teaching how it is to live a life in accord with sound doctrine. What kind of life is consistent with the truth of God's word? How should we live? What we have in these verses is a list of character qualities and actions for people to pursue and, and grow in, no matter what your age, no matter what your gender, no matter what stage of life you're in. We could spend quite a bit of time in these verses, uh, but I want us to simply consider this point, that there is a way of life for each of us that stems from sound, solid, biblical teaching. And while some of what we read of in those initial verses might be done by those who don't trust in Jesus, for the one who claims the name of Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord, there is a motivation for living this kind of life that is distinctly Christian that I want to get at this morning. That is in our section of Statement of Faith. How should the Christian live in this world? In the private moments, in the mundane moments, in the quiet moments, in the loud moments, in the at-church moments, in the suffering moments, in the moments of temptation, in the sad moments, in the happy moments. If you profess to be a follower of Jesus, what is it that motivates you to a life that is supposed to be walking in accordance to sound doctrine? What does it look like day after day? The main point that I want to make is delighting in your life in Christ is the only reality that will rightly motivate you to a Godward life. That's, that's, the, that's the main point. Delighting in your life in Christ is the only reality that will rightly motivate you to a Godward life. This morning I want to consider three things that are meant to motivate us in this text in verses 11 through 14. Verse 11, specifically, the grace of God has appeared. 
What is it that motivates us to a life that is lived towards Christ, that's lived in a Godward way? What is it that motivates you? What is it that motivates Titus? What is it that motivates Paul? What is it that Titus is supposed to be teaching so as to motivate people to a life that is in accord with sound doctrine? Well, for the grace of God has appeared. For the grace of God has appeared. Titus exhorts young or old men, old women, young men and young women and everybody to be sound in faith and love and steadfastness and teach what is good and to love others and to be self-controlled. But, but why? Why is that to be his teaching? Why is that the case? Is it just simply to create a moral people? Is it just simply to, to create a people that kind of look a little bit different than those people around them? What is the motivation that Titus is to give them? What is the motivation that Paul is telling Titus? What is the motivation that the Holy Spirit is telling Paul to tell Titus, to tell to those people, to tell to us this morning? Paul tells us in verse 11, for because the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. And so let's think about that for a moment. What is the grace of God? A grace is a disposition of God towards fallen sinful people like you and me, where he generously forgives us all our wrongdoing and moves towards us with blessing rather than with judgment. That's the kind of a definition of grace, uh, God's grace in particular, the grace of God. The fact of the matter is we don't deserve grace uh, because we sin against God all the time. And perhaps you'd want to push back on that and say, you know what, I'm not as bad as, as that. I'm not as bad as 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 uh, the way that it's making it seem here, that I really don't, really just not that bad of a person. And he might be a wonderful person. I'm talking to people who have heard the gospel over and over and over again, who, who have forgotten to whatever extent, and you're trying to earn some sort of right standing with God. You know, you're a wonderful person. You're kind, generous, gracious, loving, and, and, and so much more. Uh, among mankind, you excel in many areas. But consider just one command for a moment that our perfect God gives us about how we're to live before him as our loving creator. Consider just simply the command that is called the greatest commandment. Namely, you shall love the Lord your God with all your soul, or with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Just, just that one command. It's overarching command, but it's it's just one command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. A clear command about how we're to live, and we simply break that commandment day after day after day, hour after hour after hour. We do not love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and might for one hour, even though he is absolutely worthy of that as our perfect, good, sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, unchanging, loving, merciful creator. The grace of God is doing something good for us who are like that. Not because we did the right things, but because we did not. It's God freely giving to us, despite the fact that we have done all the wrong things. We are held accountable for our lack, not just simply what we 
purposefully do against God, but we are also held accountable for our lack of that which we are supposed to do, what we are compelled to do, what Jesus is worthy of. We don't love him with all of our heart, soul, and might. Even if we love him a bit with our heart, soul, and might, we don't love him with all of our heart, soul, and might. So we are in serious trouble. Grace takes a once blasphemous, murderous man like Paul and turns him into a new creation and gives him eternal life. Paul rejoices in that fact. He gets it. He gets it. He sees it. He knows it's true in him, and he's received the grace of God. Paul rejoices in it. He's regularly in wonder of what God has done. We don't hardly, we can hardly read much of Paul whatsoever without him just breaking out into some sort of thanksgiving and praise. He's overwhelmed by this. All that God has done, he considers what God has done and worked in his life and made him into what he is now. Grace brought him salvation. Grace has forgiven him. Grace cleared his records of wrongdoing. Grace overflows for him and for us in a rescue from the power and penalty of sin. It brings us peace with God. It promises us eternal life. And Paul says that the grace of God has brought salvation for all people. The grace of God is available not just to a few, but is available to anyone. Available to you this morning. You who are hearing this, whether here or whether on live stream or someday in the future, the fact is it's available to you today, right now, in this moment. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. How so? How has the grace of God appeared well, it's, it's appeared in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And listen, this Christmas time, uh, we have the glorious daily reminders that truly the grace of God has arrived in Christ. You want to know what brings joy at Christmas time? It's certainly not the presence, although it brings a level of joy. Certainly not just family, although it brings a level of joy, also potentially significant pain. It is the fact that the grace of God has come. The grace of God did not stand far off. The grace of God has come. He moved towards us. And so again, I, I love the secular songs. I really do. I love the parties. I love the gifts and the decorations. I love it all. I even love Hallmark movies for the most part. But the joy and wonder that Christ has come, that the grace of God has appeared... Unbelievable. Apart from Christ, Christmas is stripped of the eternal joy it's brought to mankind. And, and when we have settled for the fleeting joy of the season in gifts and family and food and magic, etc., for many, Christmas is just a reminder of painful things. Or joyful moments, it just kind of comes and goes and then we enter back into life. The reality is the grace of God has come. We celebrate it at Christmas, but it's true 365 days of the year. Joy never departs the one who receives the grace of God that has come. 
God can only forgive us and welcome us to himself because of what we read about in verses 13 and 14 in Titus 2, where it says, Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Our Jesus, not a cute little antiquated religious symbol, or idea that makes his way into cultural Christmas festivities to ruin everyone's joy. But the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, gave himself for us to redeem us. That's why we celebrate. And I, I, I know if, if you're like me, you kind of you know, get sick of even the little quote, you know, Jesus is the reason for the season. It's like, but it's true. He is the reason for the season. Not the, he is the one. And we just simply get sidetracked regularly. And, and there's so much joy to be had in Christmas. I mean, there is so much fun, right? But, but listen, that doesn't motivate us to godly living, the fun. What motivates us to godly living, what motivates us is that the Son of God has come. The grace of God has appeared and brought salvation for all people, starting with you this morning. That's what stokes us. That's what fires us up to walk in grace and to defeat sin and all that we're going to talk about through these moments we have together. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God who gave himself to redeem us. That's how grace flows to us. All sin is against God and therefore requires justice from God. And the story of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, tells us clearly that justice was carried out not on somebody else but on this little baby who 30-some years later would, after living a perfect life, would die a death in my place. And so he would stand there or be nailed to the tree, condemned in my place. Not as a recipient of some sort of cosmic child abuse, but the recipient of all of God's wrath that was poured out on him instead of me. Holy God, not, a, not an angry, ticked-off God who just, just wants to get after somebody. Sin has to be paid for. It just has to be paid for. It always has through Scripture. God's grace comes to us through Jesus and his work of atonement. And, and as the other Scriptures testify, we receive it only through faith in Jesus Christ as our great God and Savior. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Now that's the good news of Christianity that we celebrate at Christmas. The life, the light of life, the light of life has come and invaded the darkness. We'll speak of this on Saturday night, next Saturday night, when we're lighting the candles and the, the Christ candle gets lit. The light has come. That despite ourselves, salvation is available for all people, for everyone who's broken, for everyone who's suffering, to be received by faith. Anybody can know and experience this grace that has appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. You're hearing this truth today, probably for the umpteenth time, perhaps for the, for the first time. You, the call is going out right now. There's no theological... Um, hoops we have to jump through to get there. It's just reality is the call is being made. Salvation is in Jesus. The grace of God has come. Will you come? The choice is yours right now. now. You might be asking, hey, what does all this have to do with how I should live as a Christian in the world? It sounds just like a kind of a gospel message here. Well, it's a good question. Here's the answer. 
The Christian's life of obedience comes as a response to God's grace, that news that I just spoke of, rather than living the Christian life out of trying to earn what I just spoke of. I'll say that a few different times along the way here, so let me just keep moving on. Paul's telling Titus that those who believe on and trust in Jesus are already in the grace relationship with God by faith. So teach them the manner of life that's consistent with that highly honored position that they've been given in Christ. In other places, Paul tells various churches to live or to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, to keep in step with the Spirit, those kind of Things. He needed to tell Titus and many others this very thing repeatedly because there's just a common problem that people had in his day, and, and you and I tend to have in our day. We naturally tend towards thinking that doing the right thing makes us right with God. Maybe, maybe not initially. Maybe initially we just need to confess everything and just, and just trust in God implicitly, but then we move on into our Christian life starting to do good works trying to somehow earn favor with God in some way when we are, as Christians, in Christ, already perfectly in favor with God. And it doesn't make sense, but it's what we do. Many, many think that if you're a good person, God will be good with you. I've heard it in some, not in this church in particular, but outside where... Uh, a follower of Jesus has been, you know, a solid follower of Jesus comes has some sort of disease. And uh, um, cancer or, or whatever. And what, what I have heard is like, I don't understand why God would give them cancer when they've lived such a good life. But they believe fully in the gospel. <laughs> and so there's just this, dis- there's just this disconnect. I hope you hear the disconnect, but it's kind of, kind of what, what we're like. We feel like if somehow we do what's right and we live in a good way, we live in it, that God will be beholden to us in some way, that certain things won't happen to us. Being right with God is what leads us to do the right things. You hear that? Being right with God, the fact that we, are being, that we have been made right with God, leads us to do the right things. It is what motivates us. Received grace comes before obedience. Received grace makes obedience attractive. Received grace makes obedience possible. The reality is true obedience flows out of being amazed at God's grace to undeserving people like me and like you. We get overrun by commands sometimes. We just think about the commands and I can't do them. I can't do them all and I get tired and I'm fed up with stuff and I just, I'm not going to do this Christianity thing. And what we're doing is we're totally bypassing the motivation for all of it. And our greatest hope, the grace of God has appeared and brought salvation to all people. Now if we don't get this, if we don't believe this foundational truth, what can happen is that we measure, again, our sense of being okay with God based on our ability to obey God's commands. And on good days, you know, we feel pretty good about ourselves. We think, well, that was a pretty good day. I guess God must be smiling on me. Problem is, if we're going after that, then how many bad days do we have? And then you feel like God's not smiling on you. 
We need to start doing better in some way. But friends, the grace of God that has appeared teaches us that if you have believed on and trusted in Jesus to forgive you through faith, you are right with God. You have been declared not just simply righteous, but you have been declared a son. You've been declared a daughter. You've been adopted. You've been brought into the beloved. You, you, can, you can have no greater righteousness than that which you have in Christ. You don't add a lick of anything to it to make yourself right with God. You have all of Christ's righteousness. You are loved, and you are right with him. Your sins, both those you've committed and those you should have done but failed to do, have been paid for. They've been atoned. Your sins have been washed away. They are thrown as far as the east is from the west. And not only that, who is it, that again, that actually performed uh, well for you? Who, who had the good days in the midst of all his suffering and whatnot? The one Jesus who came, the grace of God came, appeared. The grace of God appeared to bring salvation for all people. He is the one who lived a perfect life in your place. He's the one that we run to regularly over and over and over again. Our life in Christ tells us that in Christ we can be again no more right with God than we already are. So when we are walking through our days, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, to walk in a, uh, keeping in step with the Spirit, this is where our hearts must run to. This is where our lives must run to. This is where our minds must run to. When we start to wonder if we're going to make it, if we start to wonder if this life is too difficult, if it just can't be like that we can get a grip on things, God is going to take care of us. God is going to strengthen us. He has reached out to us. He has come to us. He sent his son, Jesus, as our Savior to trust in him completely. This is our life in Christ. And so you can read our, our, our statement of faith. I'm not going to take time to read our statement of faith this morning in this section. I'll put it in the sermon follow-up. But everything I'm speaking of here is in our statement of faith in this section. Our life in Christ is what motivates us for our life in Christ. When we put pressure on ourselves or our kids or our spouse or peers or friends, whoever, to live in a way that might just actually please God enough to pour out grace on us, we'll always arrive at a dead end. There's no way out. And certainly, joy is fleeting. And certainly, we can please him by our obedience. He is not pleased by our disobedience. But that's a different category of pleasure. We who have all of Christ's righteousness are always sons and daughters, loved infinitely. Always in one way, having the smile of God on us as our loving, gracious, merciful Father. And when we disobey, it's there's no side-eye, there's no irritation that creeps up. It is love manifested and caring for us and disciplining us and caring for us to grow and to move, to, to bring us sanctification, to grow us in sanctification. If, if God isn't already pleased with you through the perfect Son, that is through perfect Jesus, then you will not be able to obey 
at all because you'd be doing it for the wrong motives, to, to somehow earn favor with God in some way, to make him beholden to you in some manner. The grace of God found in Jesus Christ who has appeared and brought salvation for all people who would believe on him is the one who has satisfied the Father. The Christian life that Titus was to teach has to flow out of our beliefs and our enjoyment of the grace of God that's appeared. Our obedience is not that which gains the acceptance of God. It's this grace of God that we will not grow tired of reminding ourselves of. It is the primary message of this book that we come to day after day, but week after week, coming from this pulpit, it's the main message. It's the primary application for us week after week after week to dig deeper into the glories of the grace of God that has appeared. The grace of God has appeared. It's the foundational truth that motivates a true follower of Jesus to live as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. So you want to grow in godliness. You want to grow in the things we're going to talk about in a moment to dig deep into the glories of the grace of God found in Jesus. A a good book to read if you haven't read this book is The Gospel for Real Life by Jerry Bridges. Any book by Jerry Bridges will will help you in this process of understanding the depth of the, the, the beauty of the grace of God that has appeared in Christ. And so look, I wanted to start there because scripture started there, but, but also it's just like the reality, if we don't get this, then, then, then really all we're trying to do in life is try to become more moral kind of people, just better people. What's distinctly Christian about this message is that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, and then what comes next is that the grace of God trains us. The grace of God trains us. Paul tells Titus in verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So he started, again, with the grace of God has appeared. Now he moves on. It's the grace of God actually doesn't bring just salvation, but it also trains us for things. Like a, like a trainer would train us for things. It, the grace of God, the, this, this truth of the gospel not just an idea, not just an entrance into Christianity, not just this nice overarching kind of thing that we talk about and sing about, but it is the very thing, the grace of God that has come in Jesus, appeared to bring salvation for all people, but to train us, to train you and I to renounce certain things, for instance, to put them away, to be done with them. Like a, like a trainer would, would say, hey, you need to stop, you need to stop drinking Coke. And, um, and like stop eating donuts, that kind of stuff, or else you're just never going to be fit. Stop, stop doing that. Um, so does grace train us to give up something, namely ungodliness and worldly passions. We could go to other texts and talk about other areas, but he speaks of these two areas, ungodliness and worldly passions. And it's not about having nothing to do with the world and insulating yourself from it. Neither is it just about loudly renouncing all the observed ungodliness in the world around you. Rather, it's renouncing your own sin and tendency to follow the way of the world in its ungodliness. Not just the actions of unrighteousness, but the lack of godliness or Godward thinking in your life. It's not just the, it's not just the actions of lust or the actions of, of anger, although it is those, and we'll talk about those in a moment, but it's 
But it is, it is our lack of godliness. It's just our lack of a Godward life. You, you abandon, you are to abandon a life that is, practically speaking, a life that really does not include all God, include God all that much. Your life includes all sorts of other things. In fact, when you're honest with yourself, you might find yourself to be addicted to certain things or, or obsessed with certain things. But you abandon that life and you want to move away from that life and cling on to Christ, cling on to the good news of Jesus, the grace of God that has come. You, you also turn away from the passions or the longings, the, the lust that the world is inundated by. The grace of God has appeared uh, for us to be trained by this. The grace of God makes me more concerned about my own sin, not just someone else's sin. Now, the grace of God trains us to truly take the log out of our own eye before we take the speck out of someone else's eye, like Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verses 41, 42. Two, we, we, we are, we're quick to look outside and look around and see other people's sin and say, well, how about ourselves? Looking at ourselves. Training me. Training us. Training us to renounce all ungodliness and worldly passions. One of the criticisms of Christians especially today, is that we're quick to point out all the sins of our culture and go on record that we condemn and renounce such things, and yet we don't look so critically internally and see the ungodliness that's staring right back at us in the mirror. There, there is ungodliness all around us. And God is not unconcerned with that. He's very much concerned with that. And he's going to deal with it in his time. And we are to be in this world as salt and light to be an influence for good and do what we can to bring about change. But in all of it, if we understand the grace of God in our own life, then the first place we point the finger at is ourselves because we know that God has been merciful to us. And so while we address the evils in the world, we do so with much grace, as Paul would say one chapter later, we do so in this way, speaking evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Why? Well, because we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Do, do, you, do you see this gospel motivation that causes us to engage with one another in a certain way and to engage with a culture who... who is not is unsurprisingly ungodly. The grace of God doesn't just train us to put things off, but to put things on. Our text tells us not only do we renounce ungodliness, but we put on or pursue godliness or, or a Godward life. The, the grace of God trains us to consider the purposes of God for our lives. 
to listen to what he says, to, to follow his direction. Specifically, God's purpose for us, uh, as we've seen so often in these last number of weeks, is to be conformed to the image of his son, Romans 8, 29, to increasingly become like Jesus. He, Jesus, was the epitome of self-control that, that um, Paul is telling Titus to talk to the young men about. Jesus was the epitome of self-control. Jesus was the epitome of an upright life, a life that was filled with giving attention to what is foundationally good in the sight of God. He humbly cared for people. He served people. He loved people. He fulfilled his responsibilities. And even further, he lived a godly life in our place, always doing the Father's will, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He was sinless. He was perfect in every way, always again pleasing to his Father. He lived before the face of God. His heart was to bring God honor. He delighted to do his will. His life was to do what the Father wanted him to do. That's all he did, and he was happy to do so, even to the point of death on a cross. And it's the grace of God that's appeared and brought salvation for all people that trains us to live like that. Not just to do what Jesus did, as though one might be able to do what Jesus did, which is, frankly, somewhat ludicrous to think about. But what the Spirit is doing in us, what the grace of God by the Spirit form, building up in us and stirring us, when we are so enraptured by the grace of God, it does cause us to live in a way by the Spirit that resembles Jesus. Listen, if you're increasingly aware that you've been shown mercy and you've received absolute forgiveness and eternal life and the indwelling gift of the Holy Spirit, when you hear a clear command in God's word, you respond not with sadness, but excitement that that's the way you want your life to be like. I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be like this. I want to be like him. He is my Lord. He is my Savior. He's my God. You become a person who wants to follow Christ because he's freed you from sin to live for his glory. Grace trains us, does it not, to love one another. Grace trains us to uh, love our enemies even. Grace, if it was not for the grace of God, who, who would love their enemies? But the grace of God trains us to love even our enemies, truly to love them. Not just in some sort of categorical kind of mystical manner, to love them and to serve them to care for our families, to be self-controlled in our thought life and in our actions, to care graciously and kindly with our kids, with our spouse, to speak with gentleness, being slow to anger, abounding in every good work, and on and on. Not as a duty or some sort of guilt or pressure or, or intimidation, but because we've been freed from sin. Because we get it just a little bit more today than we did yesterday. We've been freed from sin, and it's become a privilege for us, actually, not just to obey Him at a some sort of obligation, but because we love him, because we know we've been loved, and he is worth our holiness. He is worth our life. This is our life in Christ. That's our life in Christ. Not being, not settling for less. Not just simply trying to add on to some sort of righteous works of Jesus, but to look back, to look back, to look back, to look back, and to consider what Jesus has done in my life, and what all of what he's promised to do, and all of what he's promised in the end to fulfill, to finally come around to. The grace of God trains us for holy 
living. Again, not as a way to earn our salvation, but because we've been made new and given a new life in Christ. Now we live for him. Now we can do, by the grace of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, what Jesus said, you must deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me. What is it that motivates us to do that? The grace of God. So we deny ourselves and we follow him because Jesus has the words of life. And where else in the world could we go? To ourselves? To the, to the world? Look, if you find yourself apathetic towards sin and your lack of a Godward life, if you're not striving for holiness and godliness, that's a sign that you don't really understand the grace of God that's appeared. Because if you did, you'd renounce ungodliness. You would live godly lives. And when these things aren't happening, then certainly something has gone wrong in the training. It either means that you don't know Jesus because you just are paying lip service to him, or it means that God's grace to you hasn't really clicked deeply in your heart. Because the truth is, when one who is enraptured with the grace of God, he does not simply pay lip service to God. One who is enraptured with the grace of God doesn't test out what the world has to offer and and, and tempt himself or herself with the things of the world, with things that are lesser, soul-killing faith-stealing passions. Rather, the, the more one is enraptured with the grace of God that's arrived in Jesus, the more one will deny themselves, taking up their cross daily, putting away sin, striving to live a godly life, keeping in step with the Spirit, living in a manner worthy of the gospel. Genuine gratefulness for grace received overflows with glad obedience to God's will. I mean, if you don't find yourself hearing that paragraph and saying, I don't know that I fully grasp the grace of God. Because when we evaluate our lives, is it not clear that we don't quite grasp something very well? We've had moments of enlightenment where the Spirit illumines us, we get the grace of God and our lives are changed. But then we tend to just kind of fall back into into a life of self-dependence or, or self-righteousness. So what's the answer? Is the answer, we'll get busy, start doing stuff, start being better. I mean, it's everything I've said has hopefully pushed that off the cliff. There is one thing to do. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. We, we, we look for, just tell me what to do. Just tell me, how, how, can I, how can I do this? How can I be a better dad? How can I be a better husband? How can I be a better wife? How can I be a better citizen? How can I be a better whatever? Start with, and never stop with, fixing your eyes on Jesus. Let the goodness of the grace of God that has come, that has appeared, let that like, 
ravish your life, just take over your life. So, so go, if you're going to learn anything over and over again, we have a bunch of information, right? Information is coming at us all the time. I'm saying, okay, fine, information is coming, and some of it's good, some of it's bad, but there is always that which is better, and that thing that is better, no matter how highly educated one is, there is one thing you can always learn more of, and it's not science, it is God, and it is Jesus. It is Him, grace of God, that's appeared. And not one of us can say we get it fully. It's a mystery. So with all that said, be honest with yourself. Admit that we will never live up to this ideal. Always loving the Lord our God. That, that's, that's the grace of God has appeared that I would always love the Lord my God with all my might, soul, strength, everything about me. Friends, it's just not, not going to happen. We can grow in that without a doubt. Even when we're growing in grace, even when we're renouncing ungodliness, even when we're pursuing a godly life, we're going to be aware that we fall short 100% of the time. We fall short. Even in our best days, even in our best moments of obedience, it's just always tainted with something. And we need not be discouraged by that because we have a Savior who was never tainted with anything. And he lived perfect in my place. It doesn't need to crush our spirit that, that, that we can't arrive at some kind of um, utopian reality here on this planet because of this final point. And the final point is the grace of God will triumph. The grace of God will triumph. Verses 13 and 14 tell us that we, the recipients of God's grace, are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's, that's a promise. That's a promise of God that the grace of God will ultimately accomplish the goal of the training. The goal of the training is, again, to make us like Christ, to, to conform us to the image of Christ. Grace will prevail, and we will become all that God intends for us to be when Jesus appears at his second advent that we get to celebrate next Sunday in particular, the second coming. We know that the grace of God has appeared in the past in the person of Jesus who gave himself on the cross. We know the grace of God is also with us in the present, training us to renounce ungodliness and live in a certain way, but that's never completed in this life. He's working on us patiently, lovingly, as his sons and daughters. He's training us, working on us, giving us more and more strength to go on, training us to, to uh, renounce and to put on. But it's, again, never completed. All of that is just temporary. There's always something wrong with it in this present age. The, the day is coming, though, when all the sin will be removed. And all the training will be done. And godliness will be complete. The ultimate goal for God, for believers, in verse, verse 14, it's, it's to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And that's begun, and it's going to one day be completed. Grace is training us to do that right now. We're, again, putting things off, taking things on, but when Christ returns, that training will be over. When, that, when the training... What the training was for will, will be completed. We will be fully redeemed from all lawlessness. Not just free from the lawlessness that's out in the world, although certainly that's true, but from our own lawlessness. Paul 
Paul's not talking to Titus about the world. Paul's talking to Titus about the church. We, friends, will be purified with no sin remaining in our heart. We will be zealous for good works completely, never zealous for anything else except that which brings glory to God and good to one another. Eternal life, eternal life, no matter what you have in your head about what eternal life looks like, eternal life is living in a world where everyone that you ever meet is zealous for good works. (laughs) Crazy. Everyone's out for your good and for the glory of God. The saving work of God's grace in us will reach completion when Jesus returns. In that day we will sin no more. We will be godly, always doing what pleases the Father. And of all the pictures and thoughts of the new heaven and new earth, this one is so very amazing. That in that day we will understand more than ever in the depth and the width and the height and the breadth of the grace of God. And we will never, ever, ever, ever sin against our Lord anymore. Because when we sin either by sins of commission or sins of omission, things we do or things we should do but don't do. All those sins are not just simply against one another, but they are primarily against God, our Creator. On that day, when we see Him face to face, no more of that. There's just no more. All of it's gone. We will never more do what was required of Him to die for in the first place. Nevermore will there be thoughts that are impure, never a half-hearted good work, never a bad attitude, never an unkind word, no foolish decisions, no sinful judgments of other people, no impatience, no selfishness, no laziness, no pride, only a pure people. This is what Jesus is doing, purifying a people for his own possession. That's a description of you and me as believers in Christ in our status. We are already there on the one hand. God counts us as holy and without blemish, but one day when we see him in glory, it will be our experience. All the redeemed will be presented to Christ in splendor, completely holy and pure. The grace of God will prevail in our lives. Now, if you've been tracking with the Advent devotional and the Dwell app, just yesterday it spoke of this this way. As the scriptures remind us elsewhere, belief in Christ in and of itself is not a sufficient guide to the way of life. James 2.19, even the demons believe and shudder. Of course, belief in Christ is vitally important, and Advent focuses our hearts and minds on a set of beliefs, namely the historic incarnation of Jesus Christ for the life of the world. Still, one can know of this Advent and even believe it to be true yet go along living as though it has no impact upon them or their world. The Prince of Peace may have come, yet we can choose to persist in lives defined by violence, power, and greed. What is required is a radical transformation of life, a belief that leads to obedience. That's what I'm talking about. That's what Titus is talking about. Similarly, blind obedience and acceptance of an abstracted list of moral standards is not the fullness of life for which Christ came. While faithfulness to the commands of Christ should be central to the life of every believer, our obedience to his ways meant to train us in the way that's good, teaching us to long for his presence, abide with him through prayer. That's why we believe and obey, for it's the very path to his presence, a life of communion with God. This is 
This is when we, when we focus on the work that Christ has done, when we see the grace of God that has appeared, and the, the grace of God has appeared and it's strengthening us and it's motivating us, causing us to walk in obedience to him, we recognize that our union with Christ, our standing with Christ, our standing with God in Christ, this reality that I am in Christ, changes my heart and causes me to have sweet communion with him. Sweet relationship with him. So friends, may we be grieved over our sin. May we seek to live a holy life. But when our reality falls short of the ideal, may we remember that we have a Savior who has appeared. He's no figment of our imagination. He's our Savior. He'll save us and he'll keep us and he will be with us. And one day he will present us to the Father, blameless, with great joy. Now we will get there by his grace. No matter how devastated you might feel today in your sin, you run to the cross, you run to the Savior, and you believe in your heart that he has come. That he has come for you. Our Savior has come. He has come. Grace of God has come. And he's strengthening you, and he will continue to strengthen you until the day that you see him face to face. We will get there by his grace, so may we rest in his glorious truth and live a life that's compelled by the grace of God, delighting in our life that's found in Christ. Again, our main point, delighting in your life in Christ and all that entails is the only reality that will rightly motivate you to a godly life. It's the only way. And so may we be um, a gospel saturated people, not just by way of lip service, being able to communicate the gospel, but that our lives would be radically affected by the reality that we who sin against our God, that God moved and he sent his son to die for us, that if we believe in him, he would forgive us, make us his sons and daughters, that we would have eternal life. May, may that message be on our lips everywhere we go. May that be the thing that we are known for. Not, not just by way of lip service, but the way that we live. Motivated by grace, always, increasingly.